He's an amazing God. I came in this door over here and Lloyd Killen was telling me, I had an experience in the Sahara Desert. One night of being in that desert and looking up at the stars and just having an overpowering sense of the presence of God. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe not in the Sahara, but somewhere? Let me see your hand if you've had that experience. All over the place. I had one I remember in the high Andes Mountains. When we turned the truck off, turned off all the lights, and the stars were attacking us. I was afraid I was going to be hurt. They were right there. I don't know why I wasn't burned up. They were so close. Last week, we read the first six verses and the last seven verses of this psalm. Psalm 139, which is a powerful poem of the presence and wisdom and power of God. And last week, we focused on his omniscience, that he knows everything. This week, we're going to focus on his omnipresence, all presence. These are the omnis of God, that he is everywhere. And next week, on his omnipotence, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in my mother's womb, all my days accounted for, when as yet there were none of them. That's next week. And all of it set in the context of the enemies. Lord, why are my enemies still attacking Why have you not wiped them out? That's how the psalm ends. It's the question of difficulty and evil in the world and why it's still here with an omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God. And those questions come from the heart of the poet. And it is pain, sorrow, and loss that give birth to this beautiful poetry. I was in the saints' facility this morning. We did chapel. And as you come in the main door where the backfield works out, there is a plaque on the wall right here. Three daily fights, it says. The first one is division within. The second is your competition. And the third is public perception. And each day when they walk in, they see the three daily fights. It is out of that embattled context. Lord, I hate your enemies. I don't want them to prevail. That these words are written in Psalm 39 and today beginning with verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will 
will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This ancient poet David is as amazed by the world in which he lives as we are. He lays under the stars and can remember it as a boy, contemplating the greatness and the majesty of God. And in this psalm, he states that grand truth. God is everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God is everywhere. In his pain, he is talking to God. He is writing down his thoughts. He is rehearsing the truths, the things that he knows about God. Even when you are in trouble, you know some things about God. If you're dealing with sorrow and loss, you ought to remember those things and rehearse them as David does here. Lord, you are everywhere. He notes the truth that God is above and below. If I go up into the heavens, Lord, you are there. When I read that, I thought about high flight. The fellow who has soared where never lark nor even eagle flew and in it reached up his hand and touched the face of God. I think of the astronauts who, when seeing our planet, from their orbit, read the scripture and think about the presence of God in his creation. It's a beautiful and wonderful truth. He is everywhere. God is present on all continents and in all countries. There's not one country or place or destination that you will fly or travel in all your days where God is absent. He is there among all those peoples. He is active. He is working. He is present. God, you're present everywhere I go. I cannot go anywhere that you are not there. David even slips into this language that sounds like verse 6 about you have hemmed me in. Before and behind, he talks about if I go to this place, if I fly on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, if I run away, I can't get away from you. And it sounds like David is saying, you know, sometimes I just want to run, but I can't get away from you. And I thought about a prophet that ran from God. You remember who he was? His name was Jonah. And Jonah used to look at the Mediterranean Sea like the poet David did and say, that's the, that's the west, that's the western boundary. Nobody's been out there and beyond. I wonder what's, if I settle on the far side of that sea, David said, even there you'll find me. Jonah didn't know that. He took a boat from Joppa. I've been in Joppa, by the way. In fact, I think I've got Don Cooper's picture standing at Joppa. Is that picture up there? 
I don't know if it is. There it is. Yeah, that is the sea. That is the western side of David's world. And he says, if I rose with the wings of the dawn over here in the east, or even if I settled on the far side of the sea, still you would be there just like Jonah found out. You cannot flee from God. God found him on that ship, and in the storm, he captured him again, spit him up upon the land, and sent him to do his bidding. I think we usually run from the presence of God when he tells us to do something we do not want to do. I think that's true. I think we run away when his word to us is not what we want to hear. I know sometimes people cast their unbelief in terms of intellectual arguments. But I think more deep than any intellectual argument or even the genuine questions we have about how the world is configured is this challenge from God to be a holy people like him, obeying his word and doing his will. And that is what we most resist. It challenges our freedom to make our life our own way. And so when God prompts our heart and pushes us and convicts us, if we do not respond in obedience and faith, we flee from his presence. There's a scripture that says this. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So he will not hear you. That's the prophet Isaiah describing why God seems so distant to his people. It is because of their disobedience. But David speaks a truth here that is absolute in all of your going, in all of your running, in all of your fleeing, in all of your attempting to get away from the sovereignty, presence, word, and conviction of God, you cannot flee from him. There's no place you can go. He is everywhere. And it is not simply a logistical truth. And we need to process that too. The omnipresence of God is not just something that is philosophically, theologically, even scientifically true. That God is everywhere. It's that he's everywhere I go. I go. It's his presence confronting me every place that I go. It's not just that he's everywhere, it's that I experience his presence everywhere. Now, David had this wonderful sense of the presence of God. And he experienced that presence everywhere. And he gives here this startling truth. God's presence everywhere is personal. Now, I took this picture and I had to use it somewhere. All right? And uh, this boy was so surprised when I took his picture. He looks startled to me, doesn't he to you? It's a startling truth. God's presence everywhere is 
personal. Don't be laying on that beach thinking about the grandeur of God and not realizing that God is present to you and with you. That's the import of it. God is in my here and now. You need to make it personal when you enjoy Lake Pontchartrain or the high mountain trip. That God is with me in this journey. That he is beside me. David wrote like this in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley. I've been in some valleys. David had too. Maybe he was speaking of that valley, incredible valley, where the Dead Sea is and the Jordan River flows all below sea level and those great canyons rise up on every side. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. God's presence is personal to David. That's why he uses I, if I flee, if I settle, if I say, if I go. It's all the personal pronoun. David experienced God that way, personally present in his life. That's why when the Philistine gave the challenge, who's going to represent your army? When the giant uttered his word across that valley, David said, well, I'll go. Why? Because God's going to be with me. That's why. I'm not afraid of that giant. The Lord will deliver him into my hand. It's the secret of David's military might. And the the great success of his kingship is that he sensed the presence of God in all that he did. God was with him. I think of those apostles gathered around Jesus, saying to Jesus, it's just about nighttime, and these people are hungry. We need to send them away so they can get food. And Jesus says to the twelve, well, you give them some food. What? And Philip says, $200 worth of food wouldn't buy enough bread for them to have one slice. They're not aware of the miraculous presence of God on the hillside. They don't realize what God can do. But David did. And what Jesus does with the disciples is he employs them in the process of feeding the crowd. These disciples who said, we just can't do that. We have five loaves and two fish. I mean, we wouldn't get to pass the first row, even half the first row. These disciples who do not have a sense of God's presence in the moment and what God can do, Jesus uses to feed the multitude. He is casting it back upon them. He is saying to his disciples and to us, God is present in the challenges of your life, in the spaces that you occupy, in the battles that you fight and the things that you're facing. God is mightily present in that place and he is able to do great things. God partners up with us to do these mighty things like feeding the 5,000, not because he needs us, 
because he chooses to use us. He delights to have us involved in his great work. I want you to think about the things you have hoped and dreamed and envisioned for your own life, your family, your community. The things you'd like to see done, the things you've you said sometimes, why doesn't somebody do this? And I want you to ask the question, is God calling me out? Is God saying to me, you give them something to eat? Is God throwing the question back on me? If the question has prompted your heart and you've been convicted, there is something that needs done. Is God pulling you in? Maybe you've already thought. I think so. Maybe that has already occurred to you, but you've been fleeing from his presence. For Jonah, it was not a correction. God was not convicting him of sin. God was saying, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Maybe God's doing that in your life. And what you need to go to your Nineveh is a heightened sense of the presence and power of God and his willingness and desire to use you in this challenge you face. David uses that pronoun I because God is personally present with him. He experiences that every day. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I am his own. The joy we share as we tarry there None others ever know. David is speaking out of this kind of relationship with the Creator God, the Father in heaven. And he knows God not as an impersonal force, not an, as an energy that permeates all things. He knows God as the one who cares for him. He speaks of God in these terms, and he talks to God throughout this poem. It's not just the I of the poem, it's the you. You, God, in your hand, if I go, you're there. He uses the second person, personal pronoun about God all the way through. In fact, if you look at that seventh verse, let's read it again. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Let me unpack that a little bit for you. You know the word spirit? spirit? It is the word ruach. And you can hear the breath in it if you listen. Ruach. The same word for spirit is also the word for breath and wind, both in Hebrew and in Greek. Where can I go from your breath? I was holding Brady up real close. Brady's here today, my six-week-old grandson. He may be the youngest in the group. I don't know. Any younger? I love the way a baby smells. Those little babies, aren't they sweet? And I was holding him close, and I realized that part of the sweet aroma of an infant is his breath. You know, the Scripture says... God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. And man became a nephesh, a living soul. 
And the word for soul, the Hebrew word for soul, is one that breathes. Now, you could take this, where should I, where can I go from your spirit, from your breath? You could take that and say, well, God's breathing down my neck everywhere I go. You know, I can't get away from him. He just follows me. I can feel his breath right here in the back of my neck. Except for the next phrase. Where can I flee from your presence? You know what the word presence is? It's an important word. Everywhere we went in Africa, we saw these. Zoom in on that for a minute. That is typical Ghanaian art. And it is all over Africa. It's a mask. It's a face. The face tells so much and communicates so much. And the word in verse 7 for presence, that's translated presence, is actually the word face. Where shall I go, Lord, from your face? It's not that God is breathing down your neck. It's that he is in your face. He is making eye contact with you. This is the God who goes everywhere you go. Who knows everything about you. Who will not let you go anywhere without him. He is not breathing down your neck. He's in your face. You can feel his breath, so to speak. He's looking at you. His eyes are upon you. He's watching you. God was communicating that through David. 3,000 years ago. But the idea of God's face and breath does not complete the picture of his presence with you everywhere you are and everywhere you go. The other component of that is the word David uses that we translate loving kindness. It is the kesed of God. We sing it, thy loving kindness is better than life. It's a quote from the song. Thy loving kindness is better than life. There's one thing better than life. It's the loving kindness of God. It's knowing God's loving kindness. This is the third point, and it is a marvelous and comforting truth. God's way with us is love. His personal way, the manner of His relating to us, of His being in our world, making eye contact with us, and traveling with us in all of our journeys, His way with us is love. It is his loving kindness. It is better than life. God is not only omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. That is, all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. He is also omni-loving. He is love. John, the apostle, says God is Jesus takes four chapters of discourse in the Gospel of John to communicate how much he loves 
the distinguishing quality of Jesus interacting with people over and over again is that he loves them. Sometimes the apostle just says it outright. He looked at him and loved him, the apostle says of the rich young ruler. Jesus loved him. They say that Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved people. Here's the thing. God seeking to communicate his presence, his face, his breath, his love. Did not stop at the poetry and the stars, the universe and the planets, the marvelous design of the human body, the amazing transition of a baby from living in water to breathing the air that startled the ancients as well as us. God did not stop there with his imprint on all of creation. No, he took it another step in order that we might know his face, his breath, his love. He became a man. He indicated he would do it early on, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the promise to the woman. The seed of the woman will deliver a death blow to the serpent. And over and over again, God made the promise, there's one who's coming. He's a prophet like Moses. He's a king like David. And he's going to be the one to deliver. God became man in Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and this life was the light of man. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. God said, I'm going to send my promised one. And his name will be Emmanuel. Which means God with us. You know the heart of God when you look at Jesus. This is who God is. This is what he is seeking to communicate to a world of people that he loves. This is his call and his challenge to everybody in the room as well as on the planet. To believe in the one he has sent and believing in him will bring you into the light and out of the darkness believing in him will bring you from death into life here you will experience truth what kind of truth 
Jesus said, I'm going to send the comforter to you. He is the spirit of truth. Here you will, here you will know the breath of truth. The truth that is close to you, that is right here. That is in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. God with us. You say, how do I come in to the sacred presence of a holy God? Considering the shape I'm in. I mean, we get into place of worship and we begin to sense the presence of God and immediately our thoughts go to our failures. We can't get in his presence without realizing how flawed we are. And sometimes we run from his presence because of the flaws. We think, Lord, I, I can't be here. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, like Peter said. Get away from me, holy God. I'm a mess. We can't get in his presence without, without realizing the contrast that God has provided for us so that we might come boldly into his presence through the death of Christ, his son, upon the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree. The good news is this. God loves you. God is present with you. His breath, his face. He never leaves. He is right there with you. And he has provided for your sin problem through the death of his son upon the cross. Here's what Jesus came saying. The message of Jesus was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he meant by repent. Turn from what you're doing. Turn around and go the other way. You say, well, what way is this? God wants you to turn your life toward his son, Jesus. Turn your eyes toward his son, Jesus. Turn your focus toward Jesus. And trust in him alone. Confess him as Savior and Lord. Commit your life unto him. Pour your life into his hands as he has poured his life out for you. That's what God wants from you. God wants you to turn your life toward him. Some of the things that are part of your life right now, the focus of your life and direction of your life will have to go. You, you come to him saying, Lord, forgive me for wandering away from you so long, for going my own way and doing my own thing and ignoring what you wanted me to do. God, forgive me, and I am turning my life now to Christ alone. The Scripture says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be rescued. Here is salvation in Christ alone. Preparation to live on this planet and to live eternally in heaven with him. Surrendering your life to Christ. That's what it's all about. Let's bow together. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you can do so. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself... 
convicting you of the direction you've taken that is away from him and calling you back to a new direction in your life? Would you just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way. These things I've done that are against you, I know. Please forgive me. I want you in my life, and I commit my life unto you. This is what it means to be born again, committing your life to the God who loves you and demonstrated it in Christ. Lord, we pray now that you would do your work in us. God, we need you. We need your presence and wisdom and power in our lives. Lord, I pray for men and women in this room who truly are living lives of desperation, not knowing what to do, uncertain about their future. God, that you would settle that and secure in their heart their knowledge of you and the relationship they have with you today as they turn to Christ for salvation. Lord, help us to take that step of faith and to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.